Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! You got it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. Let's talk about the real problem with any sports supplementation, any behavior change, consistency. How easy is it for you to do the things you need to do? What exactly are you talking about? I'm talking about <laughs> we see that people have the best laid plans, but then somehow things like life gets in the way. We're, today we're talking about collagen shots. Shots! on Which is uh, probably our favorite supplement. Yeah, and the reason is I never forget to take it. These little individual packs, 10 grams of collagen, all the vitamin C, all the, the clinically studied collagen, peptides. But guess what? It goes in your pocket. So I'm never like, oh, I'm at the gym or I'm, a, I'm on my bike ride. I forgot to take it. It's just right there. Yeah. I mean, I always have two or three collagen shots in my work purse, in my gym bag. Nerd. When I travel. It's true. Um, so they're just the best thing to have around. And they also taste really good and help with things like recovery. And feeling better after you work out. Yeah, I tell you what, uh, the older we get, the more I convince that collagen is part of the fountain of youth. We want to have bomb-proof tissues. You're not eating enough chicken skin, people. To get your own collagen shots, go to thereadystate.com slash momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Sleep Me. When we are trying to untangle the Gordian knot of human experience. As in, I want to feel better. I want to look better naked. I want to perform better. I want to heal. I want to learn. I want to grow. You have to sleep. I can't stress this enough. Like if you're in chronic pain, we got to get ahead of your sleep. And those things are complicated things to do. Well, and here's the deal. Science tells us that having a lower core body temperature helps us sleep better. Yeah. When we're trying to have people sleep better, one of the most undertapped, underappreciated aspects of that is being cool. Is yeah, is managing your temperature. And for those of you who are run hot, like yours truly, it's a big deal. It would wake me up a lot. Like you know, the, we used to call the leg the regulator. And uh, you know, I'd be like, "Don't come you near you me." You just have your one leg That's out, right. and that was leg the only out. way you could regulate any temperature. When I discovered Sleep Me technology, I've been on this on this thing for almost a decade. It has changed the quality of my sleep, density of my sleep. I love it, and. If you are a cold sleeper, you can make that thing hot. That's no problem. You can adjust your temperature and find sort of an ideal temperature. So don't mess around. We are huge fans of these products. Head over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save off the purchase of any new Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. There is an offer available exclusively for Ready State podcast listeners and only for a limited time. That's sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Every day. We are delighted to introduce Luca Padua to the Ready State Podcast. Dude, Luca is, we just, how do we discover Luca? Luca is this gentleman, savage, crazy, amazing surfer who lives in the basement and is Laird Hamilton's surf partner. That's the surface. That is the surface and that's how we first met Luca. But maybe he's maybe best known or one of the things he's known for is he was the youngest kid to ever surf Mavericks when he was 13 years old. Yeah. So what I love about this conversation is we're going to get a glimpse into what I think is an incredible way and a sustainable way of becoming a professional athlete in early age, especially in the wildness of the internet and Instagram and being famous. Here we have a young person who gets early mentorship in a culture that is saying, hey, here's a better way to do this. If you want to do this thing, this is what it looks like. Yeah, I just loved hearing so much about how he trains to be a big wave surfer and sort of the progression of his training over the last eight or nine years and what's changed and what's working and just how thoughtful he is about it all. I also loved hearing, not going to spoiler it, about his in ocean animal encounters. <laughs> I love it. One of the greatest parts of this conversation I want you to, to be aware of is that Lucas shows and all of his associations and is quick to talk about his lineage. I think in today's social media, it's so easy to say, I got here on my own. And Luca is really powerful because he brings all of the people that are part of his success with him. And as a model for being, he's one of the youngest I'll call extreme athletes, outdoor athletes, adventure athletes 
in our sort of world circle right now, and he's one of the most complete athletes I've met in a long time. Yeah, I mean, Luca is just one of the nicest humans, most thoughtful people, and also is a total badass of an athlete. Lastly, I don't know if we get into it here or not, but never play cornhole with Luca. You will yeah. take your lunch money. Please enjoy this great cat podcast with our friend Luca Pedro. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Luca, what is up? Welcome to the Ready State podcast. Thank you guys for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, it is a privilege. Let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> you, last time I saw you, you stomped me so thoroughly in cornhole that uh, I actually came back and we bought cornhole and we were like, we're so embarrassed by our native latent non-existent cornhole skills that we we were like... And we've barely been practicing, so we're still terrible. I know, it's true. So it hasn't worked. Okay, where are you talking to us from right now? Right this second, I'm sitting in Malibu, California. And I've been here... What and who is in Malibu? What and who? I'm down here, and this is a year three for me. I've been living with Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese. And we've been training and hanging out underwater and twiddling our thumbs, getting ready for winter time. So we're going to have a lot of questions about that part of your three-year experience, but I want to go way back in time and have you tell us a little bit about how you got into surfing in the first place. And how you ended up in this room, because you, you know you just don't like catch a little wave and then poof, you exist in the, yeah. in the dungeon. Yeah. What happened? What's the story? So I grew up in the small town of Half Moon Bay, California. And it's kind of famous for a reason. It's famous for a reason, a giant wave Mavericks and right down the road from where you guys are right now. And I was fortunate enough to participate in the junior lifeguards program when I was eight years old until I believe 12, but a very kind instructor taught me how to surf during that program. And that was all, all it takes is one wave. Was there actually a junior lifeguard program in Half Moon Bay, or did you have to go down to Santa Cruz or some other surround? Half Moon Bay State Junior Lifeguards. Amazing program. It's the coolest. We don't live anywhere near a beach, but I am such a huge fan of junior lifeguards. And if I lived anywhere near one, I would send my kids to it. But it's too late. I love it. I tell people all the time. I meet parents in Whole Foods and out in town, and I'm like, junior guards. For your kids, junior guards, junior guards, junior guards, junior guards. Will you explain that for a second? Because... As we'll get into, you are quite competent physically. You train a lot. You take your wave preparation seriously, and you also happen to be a really good athlete. Those things are not necessarily automatically conjoined. But roots, running, being competent, multiple avenues into the ocean, swimming, body surfing, surf ski, wave ski, all of those things. How does that? Yeah, like, and for the people who don't know, heard. like, what even is junior lifeguards? Like, because what do you learn in that? Mm. So junior lifeguards is a four to eight week summer program that you can participate in as a young, hungry beachgoer. And there's a staff, a team of six to eight seasoned veteran lifeguards that, that host these kids. And you go through everything from surf and environment education, CPR, safety training, how to make a local safety contact if you were on the beach and you saw someone who was in need of help or acting irresponsibly. There's no shortage of incredibly fun games and physical competition, swimming, running, building. And so you get just four to eight weeks to immerse yourself in the salt and the sand and an amazing crew of inspiring instructors. So were your parents surfers? They weren't. My dad's a sailor. My mom grew up in the Midwest and <laughs> by the grace of God, I grew up by a beach. Do you feel like your parents knew they needed a, you know, there's an old saying, hang on, it's not doing. Is it an old Russian saying? <laughs> not even. If you want to control a wild bull, you put it in a big field. <laughs> and did your parents figure out early on that grinding you down through activity, through surf, was that the way? Is that the way of your family? I think you have a brother there. I mean, do you have other siblings who who have a similar path? Slightly. We're all different in our own ways, but the bowl in the field, it's a good analogy because my dad literally put me in a field. He had me playing baseball. And so up until high school, I was a 
committed baseball player. I was a catcher and there is nothing more frustrating in the world than wanting to go surf and having to go to baseball practice. (laughs) So say we all. Yes, but I can appreciate it now looking back. My dad wanted me to learn how to work on a team and that's, you know, that's an irreplaceable skill. So grew up playing team sports and wishing I was on the beach when I wasn't. So you, how old were you when you were first introduced to surfing and by whom? And then at what point did you sort of decide you were going all in to focus on surfing? Especially big wave surfing, because yeah. that's not surfing. Yeah. Surfing and big yeah, wave I mean, surfing I'm are assuming sort of you different. didn't start big wave surfing. That was an evolution. No, junior lifeguards, I just push yeah, them yeah, in. Yeah, just here, let's go Mavericks. Mavericks. Here Small we go. Well, what's cool is you're doing the junior lifeguard program and you're at a beach directly across the bay. So you're looking a couple miles straight out is Mavericks from where you are as an eight or nine year old kid. And obviously nowhere near the dangerous surf, but you're looking straight at it and growing up in this town and being a surfer, you start to cultivate this relationship with big surf and the big dangerous ocean. But I started surfing in the junior lifeguard program. I had, we had a block of schedule during a few days of the week called WDT, which was water development time. So you could either surf or boogie board or paddle or swim, whatever you wanted. And there's an instructor named Taylor Reese who grabbed a surfboard and said, come on, I want to push you into a wave. And so he pushed me into my first wave when I, I mean, I must've been eight or nine years old. And when I was eight or nine years old, I decided that I wanted to stick with surfing for the rest of my life. What is the trajectory locally? You know, we're in San Francisco. We have a lot of surfer friends who migrate down. We have friends who surf with you in the lineup. How does a young kid transition? What are the stepwise to actually ending up in Mavericks? That place has a pecking order. It's real danger there. Legendary surfers have drowned there. It's real. How do you take those steps? And how did your parents feel about taking those steps? And also maybe include that you're known for taking those steps early. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so the good thing about growing up as a surfer in Half Moon Bay is there's the type of surf you get is extremely diverse. You have beach breaks, there's reef break, reef breaks, excuse me, there's big waves and small waves. So you get a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of surf, which can definitely speed up your development. I was actually really scared of what we could classify as anything significant as far as surf size. So when I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, in those first few years of me really enjoying surfing, I was scared of bigger waves. And again, growing up as a surfer in Half Moon Bay, you idolize Mavericks and you idolize the ladies and gentlemen who go out there and put their life in the line and surf that wave. So for me growing up, I was terrified of big waves and I grew up in front of one of the best big waves on the planet. And that always seemed like something that I wanted to, it was something that I wanted to, to participate in. We talk with our daughters, whom you know, a lot about just taking small incremental risks all the time. And that, you know, it's, it seems like a small risk and it builds and builds and builds and your abilities and capacities feeling behind you. I feel like, though, with a wave like that, I know it's not always 40 feet, 60 feet, huge, but there's got to be a moment where you're like, okay, I'm committing to surfing this thing, which is infamous and really amazing, but there's got to be a, a, yeah, a, like a kind a of a quantum leap there. Yeah. Is, is there a straight progression? You're just like, you know, now it's 21 feet, now it's 22 feet, and now it's 60 feet, or do you just keep yeah. building up? Or how is does there that, someday how does that you're work? like, I'm ready, I'm doing this? It's more like that. At some point, you're just jumping off the high dive, right? Because as soon as you go out and you're like, okay, it's my day, it's 20 feet, it's not 22 feet, then the 25 footer is going to come and it's going to land directly on top of your head. So (laughs) yes, I'm well-versed in that. And um, (laughs) I had a lot of exposure to different, different sizes and different types of waves, which I was very, very fortunate to have mentors to help expose me to. And so Right when I turned 12 or 13, it was like a flip switched. And I had this attraction to bigger surf that the fear was still there, but I 
cultivated a respect through that fear. And I have my sights set on Mavericks. It seems to me that you either have that crystallizing experience when you get that first taste of you're all in, it's very real, the consequences are real, and you either stick with it or you just say, hey, that's not for me. Do you remember what sort of feeling was? Was your first experience on that big wave where you decided, hey, I'm going to be a big wave surfer because you, you clearly have become one. Do you remember your feelings in that moment of thinking like, oh my gosh, I have to do that again and it gets bigger and I have a lot more work to do? Or can you just set that up for us? Like, what is that crystallizing moment? Mm -hmm. Well, for me, when I, so I went out to Mavericks for the first time and surfed when I was 13 and rewind a few years, I was sitting in a fifth grade classroom and we had a, a goal sheet to write. And I remember, I'm sure we could get my mom to pull this out of the attic, but I had a goal sheet and on my fifth grade goal sheet, I wrote that I wanted to surf Mavericks before I turned 16. And then fast forward a few years, I had the opportunity to go out there for the first time and catching the first wave for me at Mavericks, I had a very similar feeling to catching that first wave at Junior Lifeguards. I knew that was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And so I just, I can't emphasize this enough. So you first surfed Mavericks at 13. Yes, ma'am. No, I didn't. I was kind of stoked that like Georgia got up and made her bed at 13. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, I don't know. I, I would love if you could, well, first of all, were you the youngest person to surf it? And then second of all, can you sort of describe what that experience was like? Being I mean, it had person. to, yeah, just being a young person. Did you go back to school and you were famous? Yeah, like, I mean, happened? like what was, what was the town reaction? Did anyone know or care? Just tell us about what that experience was like. Did you like. blow up on Surfline? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting for me because I actually didn't have any of intention of surfing Mavericks that early. I knew I, I wanted to do it at some point. I had zero intention of doing it that day, that time, that season. But I had been training and surfing with a good friend of mine who I tow with now, Tim West. And he called me up one day. It was an afternoon, beautiful. And he says, hey, Mavericks is really good. And I said, awesome. I hope you have a great time. <laughs> and he said, no, get your wetsuit and come down to my house. It's time. And uh, did you have was to sign? Was he also 13? And, and did you have to sign? Was, like, did you have to like sign a something with your parents? Or was like, he, yeah. I'm like, wait, what'd your mom say? We used to make people sign. Here. We used to make people sign a waiver to come jump on our trampoline in our house. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot here. Wait. So was he an adult at the time or was he also 13? Absolutely. A responsible adult. <laughs> Mavericks competition competitor an experienced waterman and he did absolutely say ask your parents yeah i absolutely did not ask my parents <laughs> so we interviewed uh this so it was like a you asked for forgiveness later we, kind of thing we interviewed absolutely. this famous fighter named george st pierre who is friend of the family and george went and his dad was against him signing up for local fights like just no it's not what we do it's not what we train it's it's too showy. And George went and fought and the next day won and then showed up with like a black eye and just, and his dad was like, Oh, what happened? And uh, George was like, Oh, I was just in a little scuffle at training, no big deal. And then his dad just kind of slid across the paper and there was George on the front of the local paper. <laughs> Like in his is, fight, like in, in, in his, his actual fight, fight, you know, is, is that, uh, is that what yeah, happened? Like, did your, your parents, parents like next day see you in the paper? No, I just clearly remember going back to the car that evening and, you know, Mavericks is, it breaks far offshore when you're, there's only so many days a year you get to ride it. So when you go out, you're out there for hours and Tim and I were probably out there for a healthy four. And so I get back to his car and my phone's blown up for my parents because they have no idea where I am. So I call my dad and I'm like, Hey, I just went surfing. I'll be back home in 15 minutes. Little did I know we had a family friends coming over for dinner and I was supposed to be there. And he was like, well, where were you? And I was like, oh, I was at Mavericks. He's like, what do you mean you were at Mavericks? I was like, well, I just surfed Mavericks for the first time. I love the story. And so him and my mom had a little meeting. I got my ass home and we had a, a good talk about like a sit down, a good sit down, talk about communication skills and how this was going to pan out. All that baseball teamwork, all those yeah. lessons were working out right now, right? Um, yeah. Exactly. So was this, since you were the youngest person, was this picked up by the media and stuff or or was it just kind of like on the deal? 
No, it was more on the deal. And I do appreciate the same thing. When we came back to the car, yeah. Tim told me, he's like, you don't need to tell anyone about this. They'll know. And I appreciated that. And it was good for me at the time because when you are 13 and young and hungry, you do want to tell your friends. And I'm guaranteed I was an egotistical little 13 year old at the time and, and wanted everybody to know. But I just kept my mouth shut and a small town, you know, word spreads through the grapevine and people find out. And then you got How did your life change after that. What happened? The first year, I'd say there was maybe some what could be classified as some misbehavior on my part. And <laughs> as soon as I had a, a good idea that pursuing big wave surfing and, and surfing Mavericks was something that I was interested in, the misbehavior completely went out the door. So now I'm focused. Now I want to start training. So where can I train? I know nothing about training, but I'm going to start running the beach and I'm not going out on Friday and Saturday nights anymore. I want to, I want to stay home and, and wake up early so I can go hang out with these older guys who have an idea of what they're doing in the gym and, and start to focus. And I'm lucky, you know, my first experience in big surf at Mavericks that I didn't get pounded. I came away completely unscathed from that experience and I got two good waves. And the truth is I was completely unprepared. I mean, not completely. I was a good surfer and I had some experience and I had been training, but relatively speaking, looking back, I would have been in trouble if something bad happened. And if something bad did happen, which happens very quick in the ocean, my life could be completely different right now. It's interesting that, you know, trying, we always, with our kids, trying to break off enough experience where they get the full stoke protecting them from the corners so that they want to do it again. It really, that's an interesting piece that you had a good partner who was really watching you put you on good waves and you had two <laughs> waves in four hours, which does speak to the fact that you were being careful about what was appropriate and you were out there. Not by, You guys weren't alone in the lineup. There must've been a lot of people out in the lineup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a fair amount. It was a, I'm lucky too. It was a smaller local crowd that day. And when we first got out there, I was sitting on the sidelines. We call it sitting in the channel. I remember these big, beautiful waves breaking, unlike anything I had ever seen before. And slowly, I'd say about every half hour, I would creep a little bit closer to the lineup, creep a little bit closer. And then before you know it, I was sitting shoulder to shoulder with my friends. And then, you know, I was like, oh, I'm just going to sit here and get up close and personal and watch. And then the one came. Amazing. That's 13. You now find yourself as a sponsored surfer, which is in today's world, very rare, very hard to make a living as a surfer. I think the internet has blown up surfers making a living as a surfer. In my understanding of this, just because it's the world has just changed from everyone getting from well, especially and, big wave surfers, especially big wave surfing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where was your progression in terms of thinking, hey, I want to pursue this? I still have to graduate high school theoretically. What does that look like from age 13? You're starting to get more serious. You're hanging around other people, asking questions, thinking this is something I want to do with my life. But maybe, you know, you, there are a bunch of big wave surfers down in Santa Cruz who are probably carpenters and run regular jobs and own businesses and surfing is their sideline. Where does your brain go at that early age and who helps shape you into saying, hey, if you're serious about pursuing this, this is what you have to do next. Mm. So when I was 14, I had a good season out of Mavericks. That was the next year, right? So I had all summer to train and I started getting some good waves and a little bit of press and a little bit of notoriety and the small town high fives. And I was getting some attention. So then I went, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can be a professional surfer and make a living. And at the time I still laughed with my dad about it. I thought $100 was a lot of money. I saw a hundred dollars was like, this guy's got something going and <laughs> you know, how much surf wax he can buy with that. Yeah, exactly. How many burritos? There's so many burritos. 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 <laughs> exactly. So 14, I had a good season and I started surfing and hanging out with a gentleman, a waterman named Jamie Mitchell. And so he started coming to Mavericks and staying with me at my house. And when you wait, just so we're clear, the legend Jamie Mitchell starts staying with your house when you're 14. 
Is that right? Yes. So okay, just check, just check. It actually all started one day. I was in the in the harbor. I had just met Jamie. I didn't have a ride ride home. I mean, granted, I could have walked in fifteen minutes, but I ran up to Jamie and asked him if he could drive me home. So Jamie drives me home. Solid play. Good play. Good play. And uh, he started staying with me for that season, and it was a it was a generally it was a prolific year. We had a lot of surf, and he started you know, supporting me as far as connecting me with sponsors and potential sponsors and, and folks who could help lead me down the the right path as far as the beginning of a career goes. And so definitely Jamie helped me a lot in the, in the early stages of my experience. So you mentioned that once you sort of decided that you wanted to be a big wave surfer and you were going to take this seriously and, you know, stop partying on the weekends, that you started training and I'd love to just talk to you or have you tell us a little bit about like, what was your early training like? And I assume it was a mix of, you mentioned the gym. So you're doing stuff in the gym and then you're also surfing a lot, I'm assuming, but what did that look like? And the sort of tee up to that is in a little bit, I want to ask you what it looks like now and sort of the evolution of that, because I know it's a big part of, you know, how you prepare both in the water and out of the water. Mm -hmm. So immediately I went, okay, I got to be, I got to train hard. What do I know how to do right now? I know how to go down to the beach and run until I can anymore and then swim until I can't anymore and then run until I can anymore. So I started doing these, these beach runs and swims and push-ups and air squats and just out of just desperation doing anything I could. And then eventually a friend of ours, he had a, a little home gym built in his garage. And he had a pull-up bar and he had a rack of dumbbells and he had a Schwinn Airdyne. And so I had a little bit of guidance from some of the boys who were training. And I started going to my friend's garage a few times a week and doing Tabata drills on the Airdyne and push-ups and pull-ups and a little bit of lifting, having zero idea of what I was really doing, but just... I got to just jump in here. You think that the Airdyne is going to make you a better surfer you literally are on the assault bike and I can't believe you didn't quit surfing right away. You're like, this is the gateway out of this, this torture bike, like that you're, you must've been like, Whoa, I, I had no idea that this torture bike was part of surfing. This is crazy. I had no idea. And by the way, everyone always told me, man, you're in killer shape. You're an athlete and surfing Mavericks. And I went and I did my first full round of Tabata sprints on an Airdyne. Nope. No, you're not in shape. <laughs> in fact, yeah. you're cramping. And dry heat. There may be some holes on the ground. Yeah. yeah, in four minutes, which is four minutes long. Okay, so I'm standing here. Believe it or not, everyone, my parents are standing right to my left here. They're hanging out. They're visiting town. And I subjected my parents to horrific ski crashes at high speeds. I subjected them to so many races where I'd be like, no, no, you're going to walk on these train tracks through this tunnel, this active tunnel. And you're going to hang out at this waterfall. And don't worry, when people go out on backboards, that's totally part of it. And they did that for so many years. How do your parents start to understand this and start to worry with like, oh boy, we've lost him. Or how do we shape that? Like what happens to your parents during this time? Because I think everyone can picture yeah, their young also kids. Are, I mean, we are parents of teenagers. So I'm sure this their reaction is of great interest to us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I actually started off strong by banging my head on on thanksgiving you know what I, I apologize i can't remember if it was the year before i think it was the year before i surfed mavericks for the first time skateboarding on thanksgiving mom says wear your helmet i bring my helmet out of the house and then i throw it in the bushes and i hike with my brother up to the top of the hill bomb down full speed i crash bad and i wake up in my dad's car and so I ended up going to Stanford. I had two fractures in my skull. My brain was internally and externally bleeding, concussion, the whole experience. And so that was the good news for me is that was a bit of a peak as far as my injuries have gone. And so I got that out of the way early, got my parents pissed off early, and then I reeled it back in after that. But did you tell them that had, your helmet had flown all the way from the hill into the bushes? Into the bushes. Lisa's shaking her head because she has a yeah, nascent, but, emergent, young skater shredder who I'm is- I'm sure he's already done that. Who is fire on a skateboard. I believe I didn't do very well hiding it. And we hiked two miles away from the house to bomb this one specific hill. The older guys were riding and 
my helmet was kind of sticking out of the shrub in front of the front door. So you were unconscious <laughs> for a minute. Yeah, it wasn't good. That's amazing. Okay. So your parents are like, okay, we have a boy. He likes to go fast. This is normal. What is the progression then? Because you're not that old now. You have found yourself living in the basement in the training camp of a pretty good big wave surfer. How does that relationship go? And and how does that change your surfing sort of, it sounds like you've always had tutelage and mentorship in a really way. I mean, it's cool that this generation of, of surfers has said, wow, here's a young kid with talent and drive and he's willing to put in the work. What leads to way? What piece goes to the next piece? Mm. So I've all, just like you said, I've always had a lot of mentors and, and big brothers and good influences in my life. And when I was 14, I started hanging out with one of the guys who's still one of my mentors and good friends and has always had a big impact on me. But he started teaching me in Half Moon Bay about eating healthy and same thing about not misbehaving and where misbehavior leads to and where solid, healthy behavior leads to. And when I, this is fast forward a few years now, I was 17 he moved down to Malibu. And so I didn't get to see him for a few months. And I came down to Malibu to, to visit my friend and just through the mutual Malibu connections, I ended up going to do Gabby's high X circuit at a friend's house. So I go and I'm banging some iron with the ladies and I got to meet. That's one of my favorite things to do when I'm down there. Absolutely. Raise your hand if you've done. Oh my God. With Gabby. I love it. I love it. She walks over to you and hands me always heavier kettlebells. Yep. She's always disappointed in my, my performance. Always. Yeah, we're, we're terrible at it. I know. Mandatory. Hey guys, we just want to take a little break in this podcast episode to actually tell you about one of our own products. And that's our Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Yeah, the app literally is the first place you should go if you're trying to feel better, if you're trying to solve an old movement-related problem, if you're just trying to not be as sore from your workout. There is so much going on in this app. We have a mobility test that is comprehensive and designed by Kelly Starrett himself. It's pretty good. So you can figure out what your biggest limitations are and start to work on that. There are sports-specific mobilizations if you want to try to lift more or Fact. run faster. There is a pain area. And we even have a ton of bonus content. You can do challenges around squat and ankle and a bunch of other specific body parts so you can just generally get more Jason, supple. You're and killing awesome. it. You should talk about this app more often. <laughs> we started the original Mobility Project back in 2010 trying to help people solve problems for themselves. We think that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. And we want you to be able to engage in some self-care in a really res reasonable, responsible way. One of our favorite parts of it, daily mobility. You have a 10, 20, or 30-minute follow-along with me. If you just have a ball and a roller, think you want to feel better, move better, play along. I mean, we really feel like that's the base camp practice, and you can add in what you need. We're really proud of this and what we've created here, and we think you should give it a try. Back. Head on over to the readystate.com slash trial and use code POD20 for 20% off your first month. And just FYI, including your two-week free trial, that's literally six weeks for $11.99. You can't beat that. There's so much amazing content to help you feel better and move better for $11.99. In the words of our uh, podcast producer, bananas. But I got to do Gab Circuit. So I came down to visit my friend and I was surfing and I met Gab and I went and trained with them and, and did her circuit. And she says, oh, well, you're a big wave surfer. Maybe you should come up and meet Laird and come train in the pool. So for me, that was that was uh, the first pool training experience. I'd like to remember exactly how it went. So I do remember this. I was probably 10 days before on Instagram and I was scrolling Instagram and I saw this video of Laird before I met him swimming with a giant weight vest on doing this drill that's called King Cardio, which I'm well versed with now. Mm. You've done that, haven't you? Hmm. You've done that. And I may or may not have done that. <laughs> so I see this video of Laird Hamilton swimming and jumping and I mean, kind of just drowning with this weight vest on. And I was, that looks crazy. I don't know about all that. And uh, probably 10 days, two weeks later, I was you in were the doing water king cardio, doing king cardio, 
just gasping for air and splashing. Just so and, everyone knows what ends up happening is when traditional training in the pool, you're holding on weights, you're holding things, you swim across, and at any time, you just put it down. And already, that's a big step for a lot of people. Just, hey, I'm on fire. You never drop the weight. That's like the greatest thing. You always have control enough to put it on the ground. You're always teaching yourself that when you think it's bad, you always can exhale. And go. But king cardio is you actually strap on somewhere between 20 and 50 pounds of weight in a vest. Like it actually has belts. And so suddenly the psychology of that completely changes. And it does. It only takes a few seconds to take it out. But your brain is very different when you're wearing that vest. I'll tell you that, that everyone turns and faces the pool the first time. So you could like grab the edge. And I remember the first time I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to turn my back to the wall with the weight vest on. Laird was like, Ooh, bold move, you know, cause it is the psychology. So that's your first day in the pool. How did that go? Just the same thing. Another slap in the face. You're like, yeah, I'm in shape. I've been training. I'm banging iron. And you go to the pool and you get a 20 pound dumbbell. You're like, what am I going to do with this feather? You jump in and panic <laughs> or don't. Because Laird's watching you. Uh, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and more um, important, Gab is watching you. Yeah, more yeah. importantly. Laird is, Laird yeah, is forget in. Forget about Laird. Laird He's nice. No, Laird just, just divides everyone right away. He's like, you're in, you're you're part, you're going to play or you're not going to play. And he just turns away. And it's cool. He's not, he's never malicious. But Gabby, man, you get the stink eye from Auntie Gabby. Ooh. So you I don't want to let her down. I just have to go back in time. So, you know, you're 17, you've done high X. And then Gabby's like, hey, you should come up and train at our pool. Are you like, holy crap, I'm about to go train at Laird's pool with Laird or... Have you already spent enough time with enough big wave surfers that you're like, okay, cool, here I go. So that's number one. And then if you could actually, since I don't want to assume everyone listening to this actually even knows what pool training is. I mean, you just explained King Cardio, but like, what's the thinking? Why are people doing it? Why is Lair doing it? So I know that was And how has it helped your yeah. surfing? Because you're already that's a, like a five part, That's a five-part question. Yeah. But. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just, I'll start with, for me to be anyone who's real, in this game of big wave surfing knows that Laird is the king of all kings of the sport, the greatest to ever do it. And I'm not all, that's not even an arguable, arguable phrase there. So for me to be up there and, and training with him and to be around him was, might seem cliche to say life changing, but get this. When I first went surfing at junior lifeguards, I'd maybe been surfing for a couple months. School started fourth or fifth grade, I went into the school library and I got this first surfing book I saw on the shelf and I opened it up and Laird's on the front page. So Laird was the first surfer that I actually ever knew of. So for me to come full circle and be able to be at him and Gabby's home and, and be training in the pool, that was the first day. It was a special day for me. Three years in every morning I wake up, it's a special day for me. So we'll start there. And then pool training this XPT pool training is, it's a system and a lifestyle that Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese have developed. And what's amazing, well, I'll start with this. The pool training came out of Laird's necessity. He needed to train to, for big surf. And so I believe back in the day, they just started running with giant stones underwater and started cultivating a relationship with these movements. and. Ultimately, Laird built this giant pool in his backyard and they went into a decade of trial and error. And a lot of it, I know you participated in, Mr. Starrett. And so the idea behind pool training is we call it controlled drowning. So you can put yourself in an environment where your body is full of CO2 screaming for oxygen and you're getting used to these uncomfortable feelings and positions and blood gases that you're going to experience as a big wave surfer when you're stuck underwater and being able to simulate that in an actual controlled environment. So it's all about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And it makes total sense to do it for training for big wave surfing, but also a lot of people who aren't big wave surfers are doing it. And sort of what's your understanding thinking around why it's not just beneficial for big wave surfers, but for, you know, Besides clubs fun, like me and Kelly. It's fun. And it is fun. It is fun. Scary and fun. We may or may not admit our pool as close to Laird's pool as we can. It's like we basically live in a concrete diving board, like a diving pool. It's just straight down. People are like, whoa. Yes. I've never seen a pool in a backyard that this deep before. I'm like, oh, you should see my friend's 
<laughs> What's amazing about the pool is in one end of the pool, I could put my grandma in the other end of the pool. I could have an NFL player or an NBA player and everyone's doing something productive and safe. So the water is supporting you. It's this environment where you can, you can express force and create power without all this eccentric pounding. So your everything feels amazing. Your joints don't feel beat up after you lift, jump, swim, run, throw, carry. And for the athletes from any type of sport, it's amazing because it gives them, again, this environment where they can go through these certain duty cycles and movements and not get beat up. You know, in my own experience being there, it's amazing how, you know, the first time it's really scary, but I think within minutes, I realized what a welcoming environment was and how ultimately so scalable it was. Like I'm always in the shallow end, just kind of doing some random stuff. But it's also such a community. I mean, one of the things that I love so much about that experience is the community piece of it. I mean, every time I've gone, I've met new people and, you know, we're all trying to do different sort of feats in the pool or hanging out in the sauna. And I think that's like one, another amazing thing that they created and that we've been so inspired by in our own lives. What's that been like for you? Yeah, well, I think that- Yeah, Latigo Canyon is a space station. It's a space station. I think there's- there's a little bit of a misconception about that. Just the pool training and the sauna and the ice. It's just all these extreme environments and how hard are you and go till failure. But what Laird and Gabby have created is not about failure at all. And it's all about creating successes for each and every individual. And just like you said, the pool is, is scalable and there's, it's also just, you know, what they've created is an amazing opportunity to be courageous in a controlled environment. Oh, I love that. In a world where we are so protected at every step of the way, the pool is a place where you can get scared and get uncomfortable and push yourself. And you don't have to manufacture it. Yeah, it's you such know, a nice way of putting it. I was just at a conference and there was a teacher there who teaches a lot of close quarter combat, hand-to-hand -hand stuff in like cars and small situations. And he's like, look, this is not a real fight, but I can promise you an honest experience. And while it may not be a gigantic, you know, triple wave hold down at Jaws, I can, it's an honest experience and it's there every single day. Like it doesn't matter. You show up and do it. It's a pretty extraordinary experience. Mm. How did that, you're here, you're training now, you've got some chops, you're traveling, surfing. How did for example, big wave surfing be impacted by your time in the pool? Most notably, the first experience I had that I, I really noticed the impact of the pool training and the recovery work and the breath work was 2019. So maybe it was three months after being here, training with Laird and Gabby, we went to Nazare, Portugal. There was a week of big swell. And I ended up finding myself in a pretty hairy situation neck deep in foamy water getting submerged by the turbulence and what I would consider a large wave coming down on the top of my head. And in that moment, it was actually the second wave. So I'd gotten pounded and I came up and I had, you know, maybe five seconds before this next wave was hitting me and everything slowed down. I couldn't hear anything besides Gabby's voice in my head saying, slow down, get control, here we go. And it was just this, I kept hearing her say this in the pool and that played in my head and this five seconds slowed down and I was able to make a good decision and get a nice controlled breath. And I got my ass pounded by this wave and came up smiling, right? And then the next wave pounded me and the next wave pounded me and every single wave was hitting me and I was underwater for a significant amount of time and I was coming up and I was feeling good. So after that, I really had my own personal experience with the benefits of pool training. So just to put it in perspective, when you say a large wave coming down on your head, like how big is that wave? It could be argued, you know, there's a great saying, big waves aren't measured in feet and inches. They're measured in increments of fear. <laughs> and when you're sitting there neck deep in the foam and... That's an old Russian saying, Lisa. It's saying yeah, that. yeah. 40, 50 plus feet, hard to put a number on it, but big enough to where you're sitting there and you're like, hmm, this could 
go either way. Everyone, I've, I've seen these photos and I remember thinking, mm, so glad that's not me. <laughs> so what I want to know, because I know that people would want to know this, is what's like a day in the life of Luca, both when there is surf and then when there isn't surf. And what I mean by that is like, what are you eating? What time are you waking up? Like what kind of habits, like what are your sort of like key habits that you're doing on those days? Mm, a pretty regular day for me so far, we'll start with this summer. So no surf. This is what I would call the off season. We've surfed during the Northern hemisphere winter. So wake up while the sun's rising, maybe slightly before and go out and just get some nice natural light. Usually try and get some cold water, a little bit of cold exposure to start the day. And then this summer, I've been following a, a program that I created with Mr. Mark Roberts. He helped me out structuring out my training. So lately, it's been wake up, natural light, cold water, and Monday would be a lift. So some kind of compound movement, a four-phased workout, and then I do some recovery work. So go in the sauna, breath work, smash my quads which I need much more of. Welcome. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> and then, excuse me. So I kind of, as far as movement goes, wake up, train first thing, a little bit of recovery work, then transition into the later half of the day, which eat midday. And then I've actually been most of this summer working with an athlete in the afternoon. So I'll have some sort of coaching of my own going on to finish out the day. Now that you're feeling you're sort of in this really interesting place because you're a relatively young person in terms of the experiences you're having. Where do you think the opportunities are for, let's just say, not just surfing athletes, but adventure athletes? Because you're seeing like, like our old model was just surf, 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 surf. Hopefully it works out for you. And maybe that wasn't a complete practice to make you as durable and resilient as you needed to be. And we're starting to see the real sophistication of nutrition coming in, you know, Travis Rice talks about diet is so important to him, mm -hmm. right? And where do you think the opportunities still lay in sort of transforming and getting the most of the serving? Because right now we're seeing that you have to be, the, the time changes are crazy. You're flying around the world a little bit. Be ready to go at a moment's notice for these incredible, huge events, these surf events, these wave events. How do you, where are the opportunities to get better as a group or as a set of athletes for that? Well, it's, I'd start with this. How many days of the year do we actually get to ride big waves? Mm. Maybe significant days, 10, 20. If it's a prolific season, maybe 30. So then let's just say you have upwards of 300 plus days a year that you're not riding big waves. And what are you going to do to stay busy, stay healthy, and stay ready for when the surf gets big? So pretty early on in my development, even before I came down here, I just started getting less and less inspired by surfing all the time. It just became this, even though the ocean is beautiful and it's a healing environment, it just became this monotonous activity where I don't want to go surf every day just to get some reps in or go and surf when it's one to two feet and blown, the wind is blowing and it's just not productive. So for me, starting to focus more on training and nutrition and recovery, these different modalities. It gave me something to focus on and keep my blade sharp throughout the rest of the year when we weren't surfing big waves. And then coming down here and spending time with Laird, who is the most obsessed surfer of all time, he will even say <laughs> there's more to life than surfing. So just to have different, you know, always be trying to be willing to try something new and learn something new and have other things to sink your teeth in because just being a surfer is one not sustainable two for me personally boring and three you're not going to make a career out of that so i think that's so interesting and i guess is your approach more common amongst the big wave surfing community at large or are you still kind of like doing your own thing and most of the other big wave surfers are like mostly surfing like is this Kind of, and we're talking about international, and and you know, not necessarily like pool training or whatever specific training you're doing, but sort of like focusing on, you know, diet and sleep and 
strength training and mobility work and all these other things that you're incorporating into your life on a daily basis? Like, is, is this, has this sort of like pervaded the whole big wave surfing community? Or are you kind of unique in that? Or are you and layered? I would say for the most part, I'm an anomaly. There's a handful of guys who, who do, they do train and they do, you know, they focus a little bit on these modalities, but for me, the past two years, I didn't traditional surf for six months, right? Like winter ended. I didn't touch a surfboard. I did other things, foiling, paddling, went in the ocean and swam and did these other things, but I just, I don't surf for six months. And then my first surf session of the year is back out at Mavericks when the season starts. And I focused that six months on training and education and coaching and just trying to, to just stay sharp in these other fields. So for me, how does that approach work when you get back in the wave for the first time? So everyone knows you are paddling and you're foiling and you're doing a whole bunch of other things in and around the water. It's not like you're like, Oh yeah, surfing. I remember that sport, but he's a waterman. That's right. You're a waterman. Do you feel what happens on those first days? Do you feel like, Oh, I needed more touches or is this approach showing to be like, you're still back out there and like, Holy moly. It's still all there. It works for me. Holy moly. It's still there for me. It's, I'm just trying to do what inspires me when it inspires me. And there's a good part of the year where just going out and surfing, like I said, is not inspiring. And so for me, just leaning into training and education is that's what's inspiring. And I think it's a lot more productive for me to do that than to be if I was just surfing all year round. So true question. This is you can moment of truth. Are you as grumpy when there's no surf as Laird is grumpy when there's no surf? The best person to ask this question to would be Gab. (laughs) I think she would say, I'm pretty close. Definitely a runner up. (laughs) You mean, you know, you do model the people around you, man. That guy. You're you're a podium finisher. He needs needs some waves. Okay. So I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction. So I've had my own in water, large animal interaction Mm. situation. Everyone, Juliet was attacked by a hippo in Africa on a, um, on a canoe trip. On the Zambezi. So I can't help but ask, have you had any... I don't mean just like in a close water, encounter with a hippo. Like a hippo an- attacked her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just, you know, I have to know for people who spend time in environments where they're, you know, are uncontrolled and there's wildlife. Have you, and I know Laird has definitely had some kind of crazy um, And there are animal, great white sharks out at maps. Animal interactions. I'm wondering, have you had any and what were they? The answer is yes. Mavericks is a super <laughs> sharky place. So my friend, Tim, who took me out to Mavericks for the first time, he, before I was, I don't know, maybe before I was born, he got attacked by a shark out there and he's okay. Bit a big chunk into his board. Personally, I've seen, we've seen a few great whites out there on a few different days. I've never been attacked or had a physical situation with one. The hairiest situation I've ever gotten into with a large animal was at Mavericks and it was an elephant seal. Oh, oh yeah, that's terrible. Do tell, do tell. They can be mean. Mean. It was a dreary, just gray, ugly day in the end of October, a few years ago. And there's days where you're out on the water and it feels sharky. It's not every time, but there's days where you go. Feel sharky. I'm going to yeah. stay on my toes. And I rode this wave. And as you guys might know, at Mavericks, you're surfing in front of this, these giant rocks and a big reef pass. So at low tide, all the rocks are exposed. The entire reef in the lagoon is exposed. And you're surfing maybe within 60, 70 yards of these big rocks. So I rode, I rode this wave and I kicked out of this wave and I was sitting on my board and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a giant splash. And I said, here we go. I knew it was sharky out here. That was a giant animal. And so I was scanning in that direction to see if I could, if I saw a fin or had seen anything and a giant elephant seal popped up probably 50 yards away, 60 yards away. And I was staring at it and it was staring at me and I was in relief that it wasn't a giant shark and it was pissed off that I was staring back at it. And so it started puffing its chest out of the water and barking giant the biggest elephant seal that i've ever seen and before i knew it the thing was charging at me and these are giant giant fat creatures if you've never seen an elephant seal look it up like think of your couch with fins your couch with fins that somehow swims like a speedboat 
<laughs> and so I'm lucky I didn't have a deer in the headlights moment. I said, it's time to boogie. So I turned around and I started paddling into a place where on any given day at Mavericks would be a terrible place to go to straight in front of the rocks in the surf zone. But I just figured that was my, my safest option because this giant creature with fins and fangs is coming for me. And I'm paddling, I'm sprinting as fast as I can. Same thing. I thought I was a good paddler until I was looking over my shoulder and I saw this giant seal gaining on me and <laughs> I look over and it's like, okay, it just gained another 10 yards. And I sprint and I sprint another 15, 20 seconds. And I look back and it's double what it just gained. It's even closer now. And so I'm getting in closer towards the rocks and I turn around and the thing is probably 15 feet away from me and it's going way faster than me clearly. And by the grace of God, there was this tiny little ripple of a wave. It was actually more of a, a little bit of wind swell that broke because it was a windy day and I paddled as hard as I could. And I caught this little two foot wind wave and I turned my head around <laughs> and the elephant seal had caught the wave too. And it was riding, leaning <laughs> on the top of it, the wave with its mouth open at my feet. <laughs> and I'm laying on my surfboard. And again, like I said, I'm lucky the wave was so small that I was able to carry the momentum and the elephant seal was so heavy, it fell off the back of the wave. And I story of my life. <laughs> rode it into the rocks and ran with my tail in between my legs. <laughs> oh my God, that's an amazing story. So I have to know if, if like on those days out at Mavericks when someone does see a shark, is everyone like, ah, gets in the boat and like it's the end of the day or everyone's like, hey, shark. And then they're just like such hard humans. They just stay out there. It's funny you ask this because last season on the better day of the season, there was a shark swam through the lineup and was hanging out right there in the channel, like a stone's throw away. And so my friend came ripping in on the ski and said, there's a shark, there's a shark. The waves are good. <laughs> that was my question. I was like, do you guys all just, you know, stay out there? The waves are good. Sharks are in the ocean. It's probably, yeah, I don't know which one's more dangerous. Honestly, like which choice is more dangerous? <laughs> I get asked about sharks a lot and it's funny because when the waves are 50, 60 feet, you're not concerned about big fish. Yeah, I mean, you obviously have something else to focus on. Yeah, when your house is on fire, you're yeah. not like, oh, do I need gas? Yeah. Like, you don't think about those things. No. Am I hungry? No. Is it going to, are we going to have a good surf here? Is it going to be flat? Can you even say, because I don't want you to be jinxing the situation, but what's this look like? What do the bones say? We've been in this La Nina cycle, this weather pattern, which isn't great for big surf. Storm production is down. And, well, you know, last year wasn't a very good season. There was a few moments that made it memorable, but again, the season before that was forecasted to be a terrible season and it was one of the best of all time. So it's hard to say, just try and maintain the low expectation, low disappointment mentality and just stay ready for whatever mother nature throws at us. So obviously if it's good, you'll go to Mavericks, but where else will you go? What are your other favorite spots? Hmm. Definitely go over to the islands, go to Hawaii and surf Jaws. That's a very perfect wave between Mavericks and Jaws, those are my two main focuses, just because the quality of the waves is so great. I probably will go to Portugal. I'm not a huge fan, and I'd argue with anyone that the quality of that wave, when it's really big, is not actually that, that good. It's fun, exciting, and dangerous, but there's you have to take risk versus reward into consideration, and I don't think the ratio over there is very, very good. But great food. Great food, great people. Portugal's great. A lot, yeah, of, right. a lot of spectators. There's a lot of spectators. Yeah, it's like the Coliseum. It's a beautiful place. Mm. Luca, what are you looking forward to? I mean, Big Wave is coming up. Are you working on anything else? And then tell us where people can find you and start following you and follow your exploits because you're really fun. Big Wave season is coming. I'm training. I'm having fun watching some of the gentlemen I worked with who just started their NFL season. So... I've never really cared about football until last Sunday. I was yelling at the TV and other things that are inspiring me. I'm chipping away through my movement and mobility 101 course. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm on Instagram at Luca Padua. That's where I 
occasionally put some funny photos of Laird and myself just misbehaving. Last question. You are sometimes known as the Rook. Does that mean rookie? Is that what that's about? The Rook stands for rookie. It's funny. I think there was a misconception about that too, talking about Laird calling me the Rook and sending me out first and him not knowing much about the game of chess, but the Rook doesn't have anything to do with chess. I got that nickname actually from Joe Kim. No, he started calling me the Rook when I was first coming around the house and it stuck. (laughs) (laughs) Sign me up. When I'm at the house, you know, and I'm hanging out, even with, like in the kitchen with Gabby, I'm happy to be the rookie. It is like yeah. all the it's expectations a good place is to be off. A it's a great place to be. Absolutely. That's what it's about. The rook. That's what it means to be a rookie is just always be, again, willing to pay your dues and always be willing to, to learn and try something new. So just try and hold that line. Excellent. Hey, man, thank you so much for chatting us up. I can't wait. I hope there's a generation of young athletes who think they want to be superstars, listen to this because it's a lot of work. And uh, you've set a really nice path for people to follow, man. It is great to see you. We miss you guys. I appreciate you guys. And hopefully uh, we'll get to hang out in the deep end sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks, Luca. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.